Hello everybody, my name is Tom Hughes, I'm a neurologist in Cardiff and I'm here today for Practical Neurology and it's a particular pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Lena Nasheff, consultant neurologist in King's College Hospital. Lena, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You've written a wonderful paper which I have read which is called Investigating Adults with Early Onset Epilepsy and Intellectual or Physical Disability. It's packed with goodies, pictures, text, images, EEGs, and inevitably I will be just picking one or two things um, to mention uh, specifically. I think the strength of the paper is the combination of the overview of how to approach these patients and then the amazing detail in the tables so uh, well done would you be able just to give us an overview of what the paper is about yes of course uh, the intention with the paper was to provide a framework for the general neurologist coming across patients um, adult patients perhaps at the time of transition perhaps re-referred um, after having been lost to follow-up for, for some years. Um, patients who've had early onset epilepsy and intellectual, sometimes physical disability. Uh, mm -hmm. And the idea is to give the, the general neurologist a framework for how to uh, re-investigate if appropriate. And um, was there a particular sort of reason why you and your co-authors decided to put this paper together? As a general neurologist with an interest in epilepsy, I was asked to take over the care of many patients um, who had developed early onset epilepsy, who had intellectual disability by my pediatric neurology colleagues and also by general pediatricians. And I realized that many of them did not have an etiological diagnosis. Many of them would have been had assessments many, many years previously and not had the advantage of the developments we've seen over the last few years. And in fact, if you think about it, even neonatal screening in this country um, only one of the metabolic conditions that could be related to epilepsy was introduced in 1970. Five others were introduced from 2013 onwards. So even something as basic as the what every neonate in Britain would get at the moment, they probably would not have had. So it became clear to me that many of these patients needed reinvestigation. So I sense that there has been some nihilism in the past about working out the etiological diagnosis. Could you just remind us why it is so important for this group of patients to know the etiology of their disease? The importance is at more than one level. There's often a long quest by uh, relatives, carers, sometimes the patients if they're aware, for an underlying cause. It's very dissatisfying for them, not just dissatisfying for the clinician, but dissatisfying for the the patient and their carers not to know what that what caused their problem uh, in addition some conditions have genetic etiology which has some bearing on the family and lastly and importantly a, a proportion of conditions will result in a change in management and although those may be a relative minority at the moment that with time they may increase in number so it's at many levels that i think this is important yes I just also wanted to say that there are many patients that have a label of cerebral palsy and um, my understanding of this is of a, um, a perinatal or prenatal insult uh, that's caused damage. Um, but in fact, many people who might have genetic conditions are labeled as cerebral palsy. And as an example, one might uh, give the complex spastic paraplegias, which 
we as adult neurologists appreciate as something progressive presenting later, but can present early in life. Um, their imaging may be non-specific, but they can be specific. They can have a thin corpus callosum, which was a clue in one of my patients, in fact, until genetic diagnosis confirmed this. So this is a small example, but the category of cerebral palsy is one of the areas where the clinician should stop and say, is there good evidence for this or should I look again? Lena, I'm intrigued to see how many investigations patients may require including not only the traditional uh, taking of a history and clinical examination but also the extent that you go to with imaging EEG genetic testing and metabolic screening to reach a diagnosis could you just give us a feel for how you orchestrate these investigations and the sort of time course over which they will be done that's a really good question. It partly depends if imaging is going to be performed, if it needs to be done under anaesthetic. If it needs to be done under anaesthetic, then there is sense in trying to group investigations together, in perhaps arranging for the patient to have the general anaesthetic, have a full physical examination, because often you can't examine um, patients like this easily in clinic. Um, perhaps if there are other disciplines that need to examine the eyes or the teeth that could be combined, com combined although it's difficult to organize. Um, you can also, if you need to do, do the blood test and LP at the same time. And I have on occasion asked the technicians to put EEG electrodes on as the patient was waking up. So on the other hand, if that is not needed, then I think a step-by-step -step approach guided by the clinical presentation would probably be best. That's interesting. I think some people might question the number of tests that are required to reach these diagnoses. How would you respond to people who are minimalist with their investigation in this group of patients? If the paper suggests that everybody should have everything, that's not at all the intention. You must start first with the clinical overview. There's going to be no substitute, as we've written in the paper, to getting a clear account of the early history, looking at the old notes, looking at the previous investigations, and seeing if you have any clues. I mean, for example, in addition to the standard history, but were there any febrile seizures? Did any of them go on beyond the usual age for febrile seizures? Um, was the learning difficulty there before the epilepsy began? Was there a catastrophic onset to the epilepsy that then resulted in the developmental delay? Um, also, were there any drugs that made things worse? I appreciate that many, of, many patients with these conditions have overlapping presentations. If you start with imaging, which most people would have had, have a review of that imaging, see if there's a clear diagnosis that can come from that imaging and if not are there any pointers on it that could make you do certain genetic tests for example. My next question was going to be about electroencephalography. Could you just mention one or two conditions? I was interested to see that typical EEG changes help you in Angelman syndrome. Are there any other um, syndromes that uh, are diagnosable with EEG abnormalities? Um, before I answer that, I would like to stress that in general, EEG is not specific. It's very, very important to, to helping us arrive at an electroclinical diagnosis, which is very helpful in choosing treatment. But it would be very unusual to have specific features on EEG 
that mm. would um, be diagnostic. But the ones we refer to in the paper, for example, is um, the SYNGAP1 mutations. Now, this is a, a condition that to me is relatively new. It's said to account for 1% of people with intellectual disability. The other thing that we've known about for a long time is uh, photosensitivity to slow photic stimulation and the conditions that go with that are for example lipofuscinosis and also mitochondrial disorders but in general the EEG is not specific but where it can also help is trying to see whether the patient has a Lennox gasto um, uh, syndrome that's not an etiological diagnosis because there are many causes for Lennox gasto but it does have some bearing on treatment choices. Um, could you give me an overview of your approach to genetic testing and in particular, do you try and send one test for one mutation or are you using a panel of gene tests? Probably the time for doing one test has mostly passed. It is reasonable to do one test if you have a very clear pointer. I mean, if you had somebody with a typical history of Dravet syndrome or somebody with um, a bilateral, bilateral subependymal heterotopia, but in general, you're more likely to go to panels. But let me just expand a little bit on panels. There was a nice presentation at one of the epilepsy meetings last year where um, a, a researcher looked at the different genes in different panels in different labs. Mm -hmm. And the genes that overlapped between the panels in different labs actually were relatively small. There were many genes tested in one lab and not another. But the other test that's very useful with a good yield is ARAY-CGH, um, comparative genomic uh, hybridization and I explain it to the patient as um, uh, uh, the modern way of looking at the chromosome because you're looking at um, micro deletions or duplications uh, copy number variants and the yield of these in people either with uh, in quote an idiopathic epilepsy especially idiopathic epilepsy with learning difficulty is actually reasonably high this test I do quite commonly once you've gone beyond the panel, of course, it's, it's genome-wide sequencing. And we all know this is going to be the future, and perhaps the future is already here. But you get so much information from the genome-wide scanning. And the interpretation of the information, it's going to take quite some time. So I, I think we have a lot to resolve before this takes over from everything else. I can't resist asking you just about one or two of the syndromes that you've described, which you've put together, I must say, in, in very... Um, appealing tables. So could you just remind our listeners of the clinical features of GLUT1 deficiency syndrome? Uh, they're interesting. They can present with early onset absences um, earlier than a typical absence syndrome. They can also present with um, uh, both complex partial seizures and, and absences, so it doesn't have to be a generalized epilepsy syndrome. They can present with learning difficulty and behavioral problems, and they can also pre present with movement disorders and uh, fluctuating ataxia, so quite wide. There have also been the odd report where a parent was diagnosed, a parent maybe with a, um, an epilepsy that presented in, in early adult life, which was diagnosed as LUT1 after their child was diagnosed with a more severe syndrome. Um, the importance of picking this up, of course, is that it does result in a change in treatment. So moving on, Lena. We can't um, omit mitochondrial disease. Could you just mention one or two things that are of relevance from your perspective? Mitochondrial diseases can present in many different ways. They can, be, can, they can just present with epilepsy, um, but they can also present with uh, other involvement of other systems, um, as, as all neurologists know. 
we've seen patients present with progressive disease, um, with neuropathies, with ataxias, with uh, intractable seizures, with status, um, and they've turned out to have pol one mutations, which can be extremely difficult to treat. Um, could you just remind our listeners of the potential interaction between mitochondrial disease and sodium valproate? Yes, of course. Thank you for that. Patients that have POLG uh, mutations can decompensate if they're given valproate. And one of the advantages trying to establish a diagnosis of mine is to avoid that situation. Could you talk to us about those conditions where a ketogenic diet might help and perhaps conditions where disorders of something as simple as folic acid uh, are, are involved? Well, the ketogenic diet uh, specifically is very helpful in, in gluc glucose transporter deficiency. Um, but ketogenic diet is also helpful in general in epilepsy. But I, I do think that this should be more widely available. It's also used in status epilepticus. And disorders of folic acid? Yeah, now this um, is interesting to me because we replace um, folate deficiency with folic acid, which is not the ideal formulation for getting into the central nervous system. Um, folinic acid is much better at that. And in fact, folic acid can actually compete with the transport system across the blood-brain barrier. And I, I got interested in this because I had a patient a long time ago who had learning difficulty, but uh, an epilepsy, but progressed and was getting worse and worse from a situation where she was reasonably mobile to somebody who was bed bound, who was fitting all the time, who spent far more time in hospital than she did at home. And I thought at the time when I was asked to look, at, look after her, I thought, at my, I thought to myself, you're going to get just one bite at the cherry. So instead of doing the investigations in a graded way, we did genetic testing, including RACGH, and we also did her um, CSF neurotransmitters. And although she had a genetic abnormality that could have accounted for much of her early presentation, her CSF folate was low. She was treated with folinic acid. She had been on phenytoin for a long time. Whether that had something to do with the low folate uh, is uncertain, but it's possible. And she, this lady became stable. She has hardly been admitted in the last five years. And um, we've kept her on folinic acid all that time, and she's no longer deteriorated. In fact, she's used more words. She sits up more. She laughs. She smiles. She's in a completely different place. And this, this is, was a lesson to me because I thought to myself, had I done this in a stage way, and I, had I got the result of the RACGH with your, her genetic abnormality, I may not have taken it further. And yet this was treatable, and uh, indeed it helped. Wonderful. Um, so I, I recommend to our listeners, again, these tables, which are, are now stuck onto the wall of my office. Um, could we, would you be willing just to comment on how you go about getting consent for the various investigations you do if the patient has learning difficulties and they may not be able to fully understand the implications of the tests that you are doing? If it's possible to speak to the patient, everything should be discussed with them in as simplified a way as possible. Uh, at the end of the day, it's going to be their carer or guardian who gives that consent. And I do think it's very important not to promise more than the tests would deliver. It is important to say that we can offer these things, they may help us get to an answer, but it's also important that they know that they may go through the investigations and the situation is exactly the same at the end of it as when you started. Mm. And of course, um, there is the ethical consideration 
um, not just the question of cost implications or hassle, but there's the ethical implication of, of the, the risk benefit, uh, which you can't generalize with, you'd have considered for each individual patient. Lena, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, this is a wonderful paper. I would commend it to all journal clubs. And I'd like to thank you and your colleagues for putting together such an excellent publication. On behalf of Practical Neurology, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Tom. And I'd like to take the opportunity of um, thanking my colleagues, Dr. Singh, uh, Dr. Murphy, Dr. Moran, because it's not something that one person could have put together and I'm very grateful to them. And I'm grateful to you and to, to Practical Neurology for your interest. Thank you very much.